Well, on this uh, day, a special emphasis and uh, reminder about our building project. I appreciate Richard giving us a, a good overview of the guiding principles that we laid out so many years ago as elders and how we're uh, continuing to pursue those and hopefully sticking to them. Uh, I wanted to uh, kind of take the angle of reminding us of our theme, which we laid out many years ago when we started this project. We gave it a a project name, uh, Building Faith, which was obviously a, uh, I guess you might say a spin on the fact that we're building a building for Faith Community Church, but just as importantly, just a reminder to us that we are entering a process, or we were entering a process years ago, that would stretch us in many ways, stretch us in our faith, give us a chance to to grow in our faith and to recognize the many ways that God is going to work in our congregation, in our lives personally through this building process. And we knew that uh, because it's going to be a challenge no matter what. We did something that many churches would probably never do or would not endeavor to do. We relocated kind of midstream after we had kind of gotten up and going on one property Uh, as Richard mentioned, for accessibility reasons and the fact that our congregation was mostly uh, from uh, somewhere um, far away from where our previous location was, we decided to relocate to a new piece of property that would make us more central, and that was going to be a massive challenge. Uh, Coming into a gymnasium, mobile church would be a massive challenge. And then, of course, the building, what we were designing. Richard mentioned, you know, both in terms of form uh, the uh, aesthetic that we were pursuing, which was communicating to people who we are in terms of a, a Baptist church with a Reformed heritage, wanting to stand uh, very openly within that stream and, and within that heritage of 16th century theology, as Richard said, uh, a building that would communicate uh, if uh, people drove by, that we are not running away from uh, that kind of old uh, theological heritage, but Stanley standing proudly in it. You can, of course, take, as they say, bricks and sticks and render them any number of ways, or in this case, bricks and steel. (laughs) You could render that any number of ways, but we wanted to uh, render it in a way that would communicate uh, that. So in terms of the form, we had certainly pursued an aesthetic in our building, which uh, brought its own series of challenges. And of course, in terms of function, we wanted to build a building that would have a kind of quality to it, a kind of excellence to it, because of the things taking place within the building. We all do that. I mean, we build houses, uh, we pour money into those places, we don't uh, just live in shacks, because we understand that what takes place within the four walls of that home is important. It's important because of the activity, it's important because the people who gather there, our family, our children... Our, uh, our, our spouses, and uh, we would never say, of course, that the, the, uh, the, uh, the building itself, the, the walls and the roof are eternal or important in that sense, and nevertheless, we understand how valuable it is to create a kind of environment, to create a kind of sense of uh, welcome and warmth and facility because of all the things that take place within a building like that. And so we try to build nice homes because we want important things to be uh, taking place there, to be memorable there, to be uh, facilitated there, the shepherding of our children and the shepherding of our home. Same thing's true with the church. 
you know, we felt like we needed to uh, build something that was going to uh, facilitate those kinds of things in the best way possible. And so we've designed a building to do all of that. Richard uh, mentioned how our theology then is driving so much of what we're doing in our construction. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the idea of wanting to facilitate ministry, ministry philosophy in everything that we're doing. So all that was there uh, from the very beginning. We understood that we wanted to do all those things. But we also understood it's a huge challenge. Uh, we've always understood that. But we've also understood the power of God that it was not us that would be doing it. It would be the Lord. And that's really what I wanted to take the bulk of our time to talk about today, to give you, if you, if you will, a little bit of my perspective as we think through this update in our building and as we look to the future and as really as we cross these very important milestones that we've been working toward for so many years now, as we get ready to sign contracts with the um, GC and uh, you know, move forward with breaking ground here, hopefully in the near future, as we think about all those things, the thing that's on my mind on, uh, constantly, the thing that uh, I hope is on your mind, is the overwhelming power of God that is at work among us in this process. The overwhelming power of God that's at work among us in this process. The power of God is, I think, something that is uh, not always understood by people. It is perhaps one of the most visible things in our lives. The scripture says that it is evident all around us, Romans 1, the invisible attributes, namely God's eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, Paul says, in the things that were made. So we have around us this constant proclamation, this constant visible representation of God's power on display, whether you recognize this author or not. And there are many who do not. There are many who see that, they study that, they paint that, they uh, represent that, they, they put it under a microscope or look at it through a telescope or whatever it might be. They're fascinated and they marvel at this power even when they're not willing to acknowledge its author. But for those of us who do know the source of this power, who do know and understand where it comes from, even we sometimes struggle to understand the way that power is at work in our lives, the way it's at work among us. So today I wanted to take you to a passage about the power of God from someone who thoroughly understood the power of God. And it's a prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 for believers to understand this power, really to experience this power among them in their lives and in their church. And this is what Paul says in Romans, excuse me, in Ephesians 3.14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you 
being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is a prayer about the power of God. And it's a prayer that believers, these Ephesians believers, and even you and I would understand that we would comprehend God's power at work among us, at work through us, that we would grasp how it works, that we would see that it is working, that we would comprehend and wrap our minds around this power of God. Now, as I said, this is something that we certainly know in terms of our intellectual knowledge, but very few Christians, very few people, very few believers really have a full comprehension of the manifold and magnificent ways that God is at work among us. And it's certainly my prayer, this is my prayer for you as a congregation, that you would understand this, especially as we take on a massive project like it's building a building, that you would understand the power of God that is at work doing exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or imagine. Now, Paul gives his reason for this prayer in his situation. In verse 14, he says, for this reason. And really, it's not just one reason, it's multiple reasons, because if you back all the way up to the beginning of the chapter and look at verse 1, you see the exact same phrase, for this reason. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he sort of gets sidetracked in verse 2, and he goes on some rant and tangent about his own personal circumstances, about his own personal environment. He is a prisoner. He's locked away on behalf of Christ Jesus. Before he got to that, he was talking about them. He was about to give a, a prayer, uh, and the reason was them and their circumstances for this reason. What reason? The reason he's been discussing in chapter 2, which has everything to do about their own personal divisions, their own personal struggles in relationships. He talked to them about how there was hostility among them, about how between Jews and Gentiles within the church, they weren't always getting along, that certain people were disassociating from certain people and people were criticizing other people all within the body of Christ. There was this animosity. There was what he calls hostility. And he tells them that Jesus Christ is our peace and that he's broken down the dividing walls of hostility that are among us. And he gives that entire discussion about how there ought to be peace among them. And then he gets ready to pray that they would have a sense of the power of God at work in that situation. And he says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Lord Jesus. Oh, and by the way, I'm also suffering. I also want you to know 
that in my own personal circumstances, God has given me this magnificent ministry and God's given me this manifold grace and he's given me all these revelations and all these other things while I languish here in this prison. This is uh, one of what we call the prison epistles, the uh, letters that Paul would have written from either a a sweltering prison cell on the coast of, of Israel there in Caesarea, where he spent about two years before he was finally shipped off to another jail cell in Rome, where he was bound for another couple of years. And so Paul's telling them all of this, and he's reminded as he's speaking about God's power about his own circumstances, about how they have their problems and he's got his problems about how they're struggling in their situation and he's struggling in his situation. And it all comes to a conclusion in verse 13. He says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So don't be discouraged by all the difficulties and don't be discouraged by all the, all the, the, the mountains that you face and don't be d- discouraged by You know, whatever your outward circumstances are, the hostilities that you're facing within your own congregation, the difficulties you are at living at peace or the chains of my imprisonment, all of these situations where we would think we need God's power, distressing situations, discouraging situations, disheartening situations, overwhelming, crushing, calamitous situations... Paul is telling them, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. In fact, he says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth drives its name. I bow my knees continually. In fact, you could translate it that way. It's a present continuous tense in the Greek. I mean, Paul's saying, I'm always, I'm always bowing my knees and praying. I'm always bowing my knees and praying to the Father, which, you know, Paul did on a regular basis. He bowed and he prayed and he bowed and he prayed and he bowed and he prayed. No doubt because there was no other place to seek answers. He prayed to God because God was the only one who had the answers. But not only that, he bowed continually because God does not always answer immediately. I mean, Paul had been in prison for three or four years. I mean, how many days had he bowed and wondered, you know, I just prayed the same prayer yesterday. And I'll pray the same prayer tomorrow. And I'll ask the same thing from God again and again and again. But he's telling them, I am praying to the one God, the one God from whom, uh, in whom uh, every family is named. So whether it is you and you working out your differences between Jews and Gentiles, or whether it's me and I'm dealing with my detractors and my false accusers, it really doesn't matter. I'm going again and again and again to the one source who has all of the answers. And this is what I'm praying to him. Four things that he enumerates here. You can see them in your Bible. They're all sort of designated by the word that or so that, depending on your translation. In verse 16, he prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. And then in verse 17, so that 
Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then the second half of verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend. And then the second half of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So I'm praying these four things. I'm praying that this, that this, that this, that this. Four phrases that take you deeper and deeper into an understanding of the way that God's power works. Or we might even say four powerful petitions for the people of God to understand God's power. Four powerful petitions for the people of God to understand God's power. And the first one is just simply a call that we would be empowered by the Spirit or empowered by the Spirit in our inner person. This is what he calls for, strength. Kratathani, or kratathani, I should say. It's the, it's the opposite of what he said in verse 13, the word for lose heart. Well, this is the opposite of that word. It's the antonym. So instead of losing heart, instead of being discouraged, I pray that you would be strengthened in your spirit. It's a word that's used several times in the New Testament to talk about this kind of strengthening of your character or this strengthening of your inner person, your strengthening of your inner man. Paul's praying that these believers would not be discouraged by their outward circumstances wouldn't be defeated by that kind of discouragement that regardless of what the outward uh, sort of situation is that they would be flourishing and triumphing on the inside Paul prays this because he understands something that he understands how difficult it is to serve the Lord if your inner person is all torn up He understands how hard it is. If you're trying to serve the Lord and do things on the inside, um, excuse me, on the outside, but inside you are being crushed. So he's praying that while on the outside, it may seem like you are being defeated, on the outside, it may seem like you're thwarted, like you're locked up, like you're imprisoned, like you're constantly battling, like you're wrangling. It might seem like that on the outside, but I'm praying that on the inside, you are triumphing, that you are, that you are being empowered, that you are experiencing that on a daily, on a daily basis. If you have your Bibles, you can flip with me back over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because Paul gave this special insight into his own life in terms of the way that he experiences this on a daily basis. 2 Corinthians 4, one of my favorite chapters in the scripture, Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We don't lose heart. Same word there. We're not, uh, uh, same idea, I'm sorry, as, uh, as Ephesians 3.13. We're not being overwhelmed on the inside. We're not being torn up on the inside because of God's mercy. And he goes on and he explains that mercy as you get further into the chapter in terms of us as clay pots that are designed to display the glorious splendor of God. 
Like, like here we are, the most uninteresting, bland, dull, pots of clay, disposable, uh, expendable. But now planted within us is this most magnificent bouquet of flowers to put on display so that all the attention, all the praise, all the focus is drawn where it's supposed to be to this beautiful, magnificent display of God. That is what we are, he says in verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. You hear what Paul's saying? He said, we are, we are these clay pots that are designed to put on God's a display of God's power. How? Well, by being afflicted and perplexed and persecuted and struck down. That's how we're putting on the display of God's power. By all these sort of outward, outward, if you will, challenges. By these outward circumstances. We're just these vessels, these clay pots where because of our outward circumstances, we're just being tossed here and there. But as that is happening, he says, God is planting this magnificent display within us that is shining and and glorifying himself to the world as they look on and as they watch. In fact, he goes on in verse 16, so we don't lose heart. But though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is what? Being renewed day by day. Renewed. Here, here he's saying we're, we're perplexed, we're cast down, we're all these things, but we're being renewed. Every day we're being renewed. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not at the things that are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things which are unseen are eternal, he says. This is how Paul's inner man is renewed day by day. This is how even when his outward circumstances were bleak and disheartening and, 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 and seemingly defeating, this is how he was not crushed. This is how he was not driven to despair because he's always looking at things from an eternal perspective. He always kept the eternal perspective in his mind. He always kept the spiritual perspective in his mind. He wasn't driven by the outward circumstances. He was driven by the internal realization of how God's power was at work. Now, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 3, this is his prayer. This is his prayer for the Ephesians, that they would experience a similar thing. He knew that the enemy would come against them. He knew that Satan would try to discourage them. He knew that the, the enemy would try to take their broken relationships within the church, or he would try to take their difficult circumstances in their, in their lives. He knew they were in a spiritual warfare. He knew that there would be thoughts and ideologies 
and movements that would come and try to sway their thinking away, that would try to dishearten them, that would try to overwhelm them with all kinds of negatives. And so he prays that the Holy Spirit would provide the supernatural strength through Christ in their inner person so that they would be renewed day by day for the fight. And he says that this will happen as the Spirit of God is working in your hearts. Now, I'll just tell you, I wish we had time to unpack that because there are all kinds of things that we do to tap into that Spirit. There are all kinds of things that we do to facilitate that in our lives. We don't have time for it, but just know this, that it is the Spirit of God working uh, through the Word of God, through the prayer of God, through the body of Christ, it is the Spirit of God with all of His various gifts that is at work constantly feeding into this to renew your inner person. And He says, I'm praying that'll happen. I'm praying that'll happen. Number two, He's also praying something else. He's also praying that you would be receptive to Christ. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That he would dwell in your hearts through faith. You say, well, wait a second. I thought he did dwell in their hearts. I mean, isn't that, isn't that what you do? You go to someone and you ask Jesus to, uh, into your heart or you invite Jesus into your heart. We hear that all the time in, in uh, evangelical circles and modern Christian circles, how important it is to you know, to invite Jesus into your heart? Only problem is that's not a biblical phrase. That's not the way that the Bible gives an invitation to the gospel. No matter how many times you've heard it, no matter how many people have repeated it, that's not the way the scripture speaks about our, our personal relationship to Christ. It speaks about professing Jesus as Lord or believing that God raised him from the dead or repenting and placing your faith in him. Those are the biblical invitations. And we have every reason to believe that these people that Paul's writing to had done that. They had professed Jesus as Lord. They had accepted his, his resurrection. They were believers in that sense. But here... Even though they are believers, Paul says, they need to allow Christ to dwell in their hearts by faith. And the word he uses here is katoikeo. Katoikeo is a, an intensified uh, form of the word oikeo. Oikeo just means to live. You add on to it the prefix kata, and it intensifies it. And so it means to really live. Or we might say something like to settle down. To really be at home. To really settle in somewhere. It's the difference between lodging somewhere and really living there. Or it's the difference between being a guest somewhere and being a regular member of the household. And so Paul, he's not talking about them in their initial reception of Christ. It's not a question of whether he's in their life. It's a question of whether he's comfortable there. It's a question of whether he's welcomed there whether he's settled down there, or we might say whether he is at home in your life. He's praying that your heart would be a welcoming place to Christ, or as I said, that you would be receptive to him. That you'd be receptive to him. 
meaning that he's welcome to come in and to give you input. I mean, you might welcome me into your home for a meal, have a nice time around the dinner table, maybe gather in the living room for some coffee and dessert afterward. But then if I set aside my coffee and begin rearranging your furniture and moving the pictures on your wall, and then I tell you, by the way, I want to go check under your bed and what's in this closet, can I look in your wardrobe? I mean, you would suddenly be a totally different evening, right? Because that's the difference between someone who is a guest and someone who is a resident, someone who is at home. And what he's saying is that Jesus needs to be at home. He needs to be welcome into every part of your life. He's not there just simply as a temporary guest. He's someone who can claim authority. He's someone who can make decisions. You're giving that receptivity to Christ for every input in your life. Very similar to what Jesus says to the church in Revelation 3.20, the church at Laodicea. He says, I'm standing at the door knocking. I want to come in. I want to, I want to dine with you. It's not an invitation to personal salvation. He's saying to the church, not to an individual. He's saying to the church corporately, I've been locked out. I'm no longer welcome. I'm no longer welcome in your church to come in and to be providing leadership and to be providing oversight. I want to come in. I want to have some say in what's going on. You're going on inside like, you know, everything's fine. You're mouthing the words. You're giving all the right answers. Your Christianity has become kind of a shell game, but I want to come in because you've grown lukewarm. And when I come in, I'm going to say the difficult things. I'm going to tell you that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. And you're not going to like it. But I need to be welcomed through the door. I need to have the authority to say the things that need to be said. I need to be able to clean the things that need to be cleaned up. I remember years ago, my wife signed up for this little email list that was going to send her something every day for the hot spots in the house, you know, remind her to clean up the shoes by the front door, or, you know, dust the, you know, top of the refrigerator. And I was just like, whoa, okay, things are different. Um, got to, you know, the stuff that uh, used to go is no longer going to go. I got to kind of step up my game a little bit here. Christ wants to come in and he wants to He wants to deal with the things that aren't being dealt with. He wants to address the attitudes and the relationships and the goals and the activities. He wants to address all that stuff that needs to be addressed, the behaviors. And he needs to be welcome to do that. You know what really makes a person really settle in, makes a person really feel at home. It's not the furniture, it's not the decorations, it's not any of that stuff. What really makes a person feel at home is just the knowing that they're wanted there. Right? Knowing that you're wanted. You could be in a house with other people. They might even be your family. They might be all your possessions, but you still don't feel at home. Because other things are wanted. Jesus needs to settle in. He needs to know that he is truly wanted. Not that you're cherishing other things, other loves, other affections, but you're cherishing him. 
not as a tolerated visitor, but as a welcome resident. Paul prays not only that they're strengthened the inner man, not only that their hearts become a welcome home for Christ, but you'll notice also in verse 17 that they would be comprehending Christ's love. He prays that they would be comprehending Christ's love, that they would be, he says, rooted, grounded in love. Two pictures here. Rooted is an agricultural picture. Grounded is an architectural picture. What does he mean? He means that the essential root and the essential foundation of your entire life is the love of Christ. That that dominates your heart and mind. That it's everything to you. I love that that old phrase in Romans chapter 5 where it talks about the love of Christ shed abroad in your heart. Because we tend to think about the heart as this tiny little organ, this tiny little thing in our chest, just this little limited space. But that gives the idea shedding abroad. Like this is this expansive kind of space that has to be filled up in every corner because the reality is that is our heart. Our heart goes all kinds of different directions. It latches on to all kinds of different loves. And what he's saying there in Romans is that you need to have the love of Christ filling every corner, every space, every part of your heart. He says that, by the way, after talking to them about all kinds of tribulation, he talks, he says, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. What he's saying there is that the Holy Spirit pours out an understanding of the love of God in your heart that enables you to stand, to endure, to not slip, to not be overwhelmed. And the same thing here for the Ephesians. He does not want them to lose heart, but he wants them to be grounded, to comprehend the love of Christ at work. That they would have that as their foundation, unshakable conviction about the love of Christ. In agricultural terms, if it were a tree and you've got that kind of a root, its branches of Christ's love go up and up and spread broader and broader and bear its fruit everywhere. In architectural terms, if it were a building, its foundation laid in the love of Christ so that its floors and its wings expand further and further than your legs could ever take you. In fact, Paul begins to kind of even unpack some of the dimensions of that when he says, I wish that you would comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Christ's love. In fact, as he starts to say it, he starts to realize, wait, 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 I I, I can't even really put dimensions on this. So he finally just throws in there to know the love of Christ that surpasses all Knowledge. You know, I think I have an appreciation for this, having sat now for a couple of years in a design process for a 30,000 square foot building and having to be forced to think through 
the height of doors and the width of hallways and the depth of tile and the, you know, drop ceiling heights and the, you know, span of steel, uh, you know, uh, uh, steel support structures and thickness of brick and all that stuff. And every little dimension and every little thing that has to be thought through as you put together even a little building like that. And believe me, I mean, I could sit and talk to you all day long. Ask my family. They've heard way too much discussion about this building. And I could probably just wear you out after about 30 minutes, but I would still be going with so many little details. And, and, and understand this. And then over here, we had to do this. And then there was this. And then over here, it was really this tall. And, we used that, and you would just, your eyes would be rolling back in your head. And then we would end the day and we would go home and I would be in the car and I was like, oh man, I forgot to tell him about this. And then we remembered we had to make that decision. And Paul's saying, this is the love of God. And I wish you understood it. I wish you understood all the, I mean, I wish I could just take the time to show you how every little detail, God's love is at work in all these little ways all throughout your life and all these little dimensions and all the little decisions that he's making to work all these things out in your life. I wish I could just kind of explain to you, but it's beyond knowledge. It surpasses knowledge. I remember when I was a young man in 1992 going to Romania after the Iron Curtain fell and went to visit the home of Nicolae Ceausescu. Some of you may remember he was the dictator who was toppled in Romania at that time. And he had built a home which at that point was the third largest building in the world. And on our mission trip, we had a free afternoon. And so some of the Romanians that we're hanging out with asked us if we wanted to go tour this home. And so we said, sure, you know, we would. And so I remember that afternoon we went and we toured the entire fourth floor of the East Wing for about four or five hours. Just the fourth floor of just the East Wing. And I, I mean, I just could not comprehend. I mean, we saw so much just in that little space, just so much little intricate millwork and details and things overlaid with gold and all kinds of beautiful structures and tapestries and carpet and all this other stuff and this magnificent windows and all these other things on just the fourth floor of just the East Wing. And I just thought, man, I, just, I, couldn't, even, I couldn't even figure out like how long it would take to see the whole thing. And the courtyard, I mean, that was in itself was like, would have taken probably a couple of days. And this is the way some people live their Christian life. This is their view of God's love. They kind of just dwell in this one little room or this one little floor on this one little wing in this one little part and Paul's saying, you know, I just wish, I just wish, I just wish that you could know the whole depth and all the height and all the depth and all the breadth. I just wish you would get out of that little place that you're in. You go to, and you start to explore the way that his love is working here and the way that his love is working here and the way that his love is working here and the way that it's working over there and the way that it's working. I just wish that you could know what is unknowable. I, I wish you could know and you could comprehend the love of God which surpasses your ability to know. But that doesn't mean that you just settle not to know. See, Paul's prayer is that you would go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper 
into this love. That you wouldn't be settling your spiritual life on just some cement slab, some basic idea, when there is this massive mansion of God's love that He wants you to discover and understand. So many believers rarely push into that domain, rarely push into the full depth and riches of God's love. But Paul's prayer is that you would go there. You know, that's the way that I've thought about in our church, all the things that we go through. That's the way I honestly think about even something like a building project. I mean, there's time to focus on the physical aspects of it. There's time to focus on, you know, everything from the design to the communication to the fundraising and all that other stuff. That's, that's one element. That's one floor of one wing. But then, you know, there's an entire other wing. There's entire other floors that are about the working out of God's love that are all at work through a process like this that I pray that we would all comprehend that we could see so that we don't just get focused on one limited set of circumstances and whether those circumstances are blowing in the right direction or the wrong direction, we're kind of gauging God's love on that when he's saying, no, there's, there's this mansion of the love of God that is at work in all these intricate little details and conversations and relationships and circumstances and all this other stuff. And I pray that you would understand that. This is Paul writing from a prison. Talking about this expansive love of God. And hoping that others can see it. And then fourth in verse 19. That you would be controlled by the character of God. He says that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Not meaning that you will be divine. When he says filled with the fullness of God, he's not suggesting that somehow you're going to become divine. God is the only God. But what he means is that you'll be controlled by the full character of who God is. You know, we talk about being filled. We often mean being controlled by. We talk about someone being filled by anger or filled by greed or filled by bitterness, filled with contempt. And what we mean when we say that is that they're letting their contempt or letting their bitterness or letting their disappointment suddenly take control of their mind and their heart and their life. And Paul's saying, I don't want that to happen. I want you to be filled with who God is. The full scope of who God is. Meaning all of his attributes. The entirety of his person. And there's so much for you to know about God and so much character of God to take control of your heart and mind and I'm just praying that somehow some way that you would get out of your particular circumstance and that you would get your heart filled with all of that so that who God is begins to control all of your attitudes and all of your life and all of everything that you are and when you do that when you do that when you're filled with all the fullness of God you begin to understand the truth that he says in verse 20 Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we we could ask or think 
according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You say, well, I don't see God's power in my life. I've prayed. I mean, I've asked God to, you know, to sanctify me. I've asked Him to help me through this situation. I've asked Him to help me overcome this sin. I've asked Him to help me with this relationship. And Paul's saying, I... If you could just get your mind off this narrow little thing, this narrow little circumstance, if you would just kind of back up and back up and back up and back up and see this wide, wide view of God working through all of these things, I just pray that you would understand. Then you would be able to say with me, He is doing exceedingly abundantly above all you could ever ask or think. So you've just asked God to deal with this one little situation. All you've done is scratch the surface and you don't understand that He is underneath that all these little ways working so that Paul reaches this point this crescendo where he says to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen so now you understand why Paul says in his inner person he's being renewed day by day that no matter what the challenges and what the trials and what the circumstances might be saying on the outside, he's confident, he's even boastful that God's power is at work within him. And he wants them, that Ephesian church, to embrace the same mentality, to recognize that no matter what the outward circumstances, God's power is at work among them. Now, that's just my introduction to just simply say, even in a project like our building project, this has always been my prayer and my focus. This has never been about a building or, you know, the sort of design and all that stuff while it is important. But really, when we initially set out a campaign that we call Building Faith, this, this is what we're we're really hoping for is that the church would begin to see that something like this is so much more about who we are and what God is doing in our hearts, the power of God working through these circumstances and even the process, changing attitudes in us, growing relationships in us, displaying His glory in us, bringing about greater receptivity to Christ in us doing all of those things and things we didn't even begin to ask for things we didn't even imagine at the very beginning but as we back up and we begin to see and comprehend we realize this is an amazingly powerful god this is an amazingly powerful god he is at work doing exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or imagine. By the way, that's why we believe that this God who's able to do all this and bring all these things about in all of our hearts through all these various circumstances, building's nothing for Him. He'll take care of that in His own time because He's that kind of a powerful God and a loving God. And His love is deeper than we will ever fathom. Father, we're grateful 
to know these truths. So thankful to you that you bring about your power and we're humbled, broken, and sorrowful that we don't always trust it. I pray, Lord, that we would submit to your work within our hearts, that we would be welcoming and receptive to whatever you want to do to us and through us, through whatever circumstances you may bring about. I pray that our hearts would be a place where you are at home. And as you do that, that our minds would be expanded to know the full breadth and depth and height and width to know all the dimensions of your love that are at work within us. Lord, we don't deserve that by any stretch. We don't even deserve to be at home with you, but to be so loved by you, to be so cared for in every intricate detail, to know that you will never leave us or forsake us. We say with Paul, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus from generation to generation forever and ever. Amen.